Hey friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a friend to join me and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Hey, friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and we're one week from the release of my first kid's book. You guys, I am still over the moon, excited, crazy, can't believe how much fun releasing that book into the world was. God Made You to Be You came out last week, and the reviews that we've heard from you guys are worth everything I've ever done. I mean, it is such an honor to have a book that you get to read with the kids in your life that you love. In fact, let me read you this review. This is from a reviewer on Amazon. She said, thank you, Jamie, for writing this children's book. I cried the first time I read it to my daughter. You guys, I've heard that so many times. The message is incredible. The delivery is perfect. My girl loves it so much. We read it seven times before bed the first night, and she asked to sleep with the book. Cuddling it close to her heart. 10 out of 10 recommend. Thank you so much for those kind words. And then someone else said, cute illustrations. Yes, I agree. Our illustrator is amazing. Cute illustrations and great message. If you pay attention, she put her family on the pages. That is true as well. You guys, your kind words are really, really sweet to me. We really enjoy it when you leave reviews wherever you bought the book. If you leave them on Amazon or wherever you purchase the book. They're not just for me to read, to like have a great little pick me up and feel good about the book we released. They actually help more people find the book. And so we would love it if you would go to Amazon and leave it a rating and or a review about the book. All right, guys, today's guest on the show is John Mark Comer, who just released a book, who's made some bestseller list, and it should because it's amazing. The book is called Live No Lies, Recognize and Resist the Three Enemies that Sabotage Your Peace. You guys, this conversation was one that I wanted to go on for hours and hours and hours. But don't worry, it didn't. But you're going to want to pick up this book. You're going to want to go listen to his podcast, and you're going to want to check out his sermons. He's the founding pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon. He also released the book, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And like I said, his recent book just came out. Some of the things that we talked through today are things like thinking about morality through the lens of identity, culture wars, truth versus lies, people choosing to believe lies over truth and how it affects the people of God. We talk about mental maps and how when you let lies seep into your mental map, you're going to start believing and living as if those are true. You guys are in for a treat with this conversation. Here is my guest, John Mark Comer. John Mark Comer, welcome to the happy hour. I'm so happy to be with you. This is the first time that we've actually ever met. We're looking at each yes. other over Zoom. The first time Thank you've been you on the happy hour. Mm-hmm. But it has been, you've been on our list for a long time for a couple of reasons. Let me tell you why you've been on our list. Number one, we highly respect the work that you're doing in your city and through the work that you're doing. And my husband has just read all your books and loves them all. And so I've got him in my ear asking me why I haven't had you on. And so here you are. Well, thank you to the badgering husband. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's an honor to join you and chat. I'm so grateful to have you here. In fact, your book released last week and I got an early copy of it, uh, Live No Lies, and my husband read it way before I did. So I had to like beg Sounds him Sounds like your back. husband and I need to hang out. Y'all definitely need to hang out. I had to beg him back for the book. Well, you are in Portland with your wife and a pastor, but tell us about your family and everything you do there. Yeah, we just hit our 20th wedding anniversary. Congrats. We and- did too this summer. Really? Congratulations. Yeah. 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 So as part of our story is, you know, we got married. She was 19. I was barely 21. Her parents wanted me to be 21 before we got married. So we got married the first Saturday after my 21st birthday. Are you serious? 
which tells you basically all you need to know about my psychosis and my <laughs> lifelong spiritual journey. <laughs> into, I love that so much. Into maturity. Isn't it also funny? This is a side note. You know, how old is your oldest? Because I know you have some kids. How old is your oldest? 15, almost 16. He's a sophomore in high school. Okay. So we have a senior. Oh my gosh. So we have, this is our last kid. And when you said your wife's parents wanted you to be 21 before y'all got married, we're both of us, the, our family, your family, my family, we're entering into the stage where we make these, like, you have to be this age before you do this. And sometimes right. I wonder like for your in-laws, what was it about 21? Like, it just kind of makes me like, what <laughs> is it? And I'm thinking about my own kid and I'm like, I want you to be 25 or whatever, but it's just funny how we well, do that. As I know it's terrifying. I mean, my wife T was a junior in high school when we met and we're thinking that's like a year from now we could meet our future. So now we're like looking at girls in the youth group or from <laughs> school know. as like, possible future daughters, you know, <laughs> it's like spend a whole, the rest of your life with <laughs> it's a whole other lens. Like there's this girl that my son has been crushing on recently and she came to his birthday party, like, and she had Augustine's confession under her arm. And I was like, yep, you'll do just fine. And any girl that is like yep. 14 and carrying around Augustine's confession. Yep. That's all right. We'll that's take a you. good sign. We'll take you. We'll take you. Okay. I interrupted you married for 20 years. Yeah, 20 years. So we just had our anniversary, which we haven't celebrated yet because of the chaos of, you know, all things 2020 and 2021, which has been the most brutal and wounding and difficult year of our leadership over 20 years of pastoring. And so we're excited. We're going on a sabbatical really soon in just a few weeks. And we're going to celebrate it as part of that, which should be really fun. And then we have three kids. Our oldest, Jude, is 15, almost 16. And that's a wild ride. And then we have two 12-year-olds, a boy and a girl. And uh, one came from my wife's womb and the other came from Uganda. So awesome. I was going to ask you the way you said that uh, three of our kids are adopted and two of them half of the year are the same age. And so I always have to say that Yeah, it's exactly the same. They're six months apart. So in just a few weeks, they'll be 12 and 13. But right now they're 12 and 12. Right now it's easy. I can say 17, 16, 15, 13, and I don't have to explain anything. But And then let me guess, everybody goes, oh, twins. And then you say no, but I don't like to say adopted child for all sorts of reasons. You know, this is just my child. Yes. So I always say they both joined our family through adoption. Yes. And so, it yes. Gets, yes. Yeah. But I mean, there was this one. Are scenario. your children, forgive my ignorance, uh, domestic, international? One domestic, two international. Beautiful. From so the where? two that are the same age, six months a year, one's domestic, one's international. Both of our internationals were born in Haiti. Wow. Oh, yeah. goodness. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So my wife is Latina. So we have this little kind of quirky, multi-ethnic family trying to sort all that out in the middle of all the racial tension in our Uh, nation has been, you know, heavy. But yes, we have felt that here as well. I know. I know. Well, just really grateful. I want to talk about this new book that you have out because there's so many things. I mean, you are doing a podcast series on this, which is so great because there's so many things to dive in here. But you mentioned something just a minute ago about being a pastor. And have you been a pastor for your whole marriage? Have you been a pastor for 20 years? Yeah, my first, I mean, again, just started everything way too young. Started when I was 19. So yeah, I'm 41. 
Okay. You said that, you know, this has been one of the most brutal years for your ministry. And I think the most brutal year, we should say that. Yes. The most brutal year. And I think that obviously you and I are are smart people. We know that we're not alone in this. My husband, I have our own stories here as well, but everyone that's listening has these stories of how difficult it has been. But I have heard unique stories from pastors actually throughout the past year about how this has been either one of, or as you said, the most brutal year from a ministry standpoint, not take away family, take away what you're dealing with in that ways. What has that been like for you as leading a church in Portland going through 2020, 2021? How has it been the most brutal year? Well, you know, it's all the stuff that you would intuit. When COVID first broke out, it was just really scary and exhausting, you know, to basically pivot our entire church. We were intentionally kind of not digital And so we had to pivot our entire church to create some kind of a digital, you know, church experience to get us through. And, you know, if you remember back to the early days of the pandemic, there was all sorts of fear mongering and a lot of catastrophizing in the news. And so a lot of people were saying it's going to be four years before a church can meet again. And again, it got politicized really fast in Portland's on the left, which means everything was the ultimate example of shutdown. It still is. We're still on a mask mandate outside, you know, because the whole thing is just politicized. And so, you know, in those early days, it was like we had just, you know, we'd planted the church 18 years ago and we'd finally, we'd just bought a building. We just finished the remodel in this beautiful historic church building three weeks after COVID hit. And it was the first time we've ever had debt as a church. We've been very mm-hmm. fiscally conservative and nothing like, you know, in a very low debt for normal times. But all of a sudden I'm looking at a staff of, you know, 25, 30 people and a couple million dollars that we owe on a building that is now sitting empty. And I'm like catastrophizing. It's going to be me, my lovely assistant, Deanna, and a podcast in four <laughs> years from now when this yeah. is over, <laughs> you know, like right. I was not full of faith, you know, and there were very intelligent people saying it's going to be you, your assistant at a podcast, like your Uh church won't make it through. So the first was just like all the fear and then trying to pastor people through their own fear. If you remember the like dystopia and everybody running out of toilet paper. And I remember walking into Trader Joe's and it was like out of a movie. There was like nothing on the shelves. It was like, this is a dystopian, you know, what in the world? So you're trying to pastor people through their own fear and grief while you're feeling all of that fear and grief. It's not like you're superhuman, you know? Right. So, and just all of the, man, will our church even make it through? We have no experience in not gathering together at all for years at a time or whatever. But then honestly, that was the least of our problems. That all went way better than expected. It was just a lot of work. I just put a ton of hours in, you know, and a lot of stress, but the COVID was really the least of our problems. It was more, once it got politicized, all the political polarization, trying to pastor through that and hold people together, not around a homogenous political principle, but around like actually around following Jesus together in community was really tricky. And then of course, the most difficult thing was all the racial tension that broke out after the murder of George Floyd. And in particular in Portland was really the most disturbed city, arguably in the world. You know, we had over a hundred straight days of riots, not protests, violent riots and violence between police and protesters, murder, I mean, stabbings every night. I mean, it was, it's still like little Beirut in downtown Portland. And it only ended because we had once in a generation wildfires and we literally could not go outside for 13 days straight because of the smoke. 
So, I mean, it was just an apocalyptic. And then we had an election, by the way, after that. <laughs> oh, we remember. Yes. You know, so uh, I think leading through that was all the things you would intuit and what you would maybe not intuit, unless if you're in pastoral work, is that pastoring is essentially spiritual parenting. I don't mean that in a condescending way at all. I mean, it's mothering and it's fathering. It's nurturing. I mean, Paul uses this metaphor over and over, you know, my dear children for whom I labor in birth pains until Christ is formed in you. That's a parental and actually a mothering image of what pastoring is, laboring in birth pains. And, you know, it's similar to parents, pastors become objects in psychological language for everyone's kind of projection. If you're familiar with that psychological concept where you project onto another authority figure, the things that you actually don't like about yourself in order to alleviate your own guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. So, you know what I mean? You accuse other people of the things that actually are true of you and you read them because you don't know how to deal with it Mm -hmm. or transference, which is where you as a leader or an authority figure stand in for somebody in somebody's childhood or adolescent years that hurt them, that wounded them, that you're somewhat like. So if you're a white male pastor in a position of authority, anybody who's ever been hurt by a pastor, been hurt by an authority figure, been hurt by a father, been hurt by a man, been hurt by racism at an emotional, not a rational, at an emotional level, you just by seeing you, you trigger some latent subconscious memory in their body of trauma Mm -hmm. and of wounding. And then they will often respond, not always, but either rejecting you or even even more so by reacting against you and often attacking you and treating you as if you're the person that wounded them. And that's not to shame them. That's just every, all of our coping mechanisms. Right. Right. So there was a lot of that. We're just trying to hold people. It felt like trying to, you know, it's like when a child is having an emotional meltdown and you're trying to hold them, but they're like hitting you. Right. And maybe that's just bad parenting. I don't know. But no, that, what? we all have been there. Yeah. So I don't say that to disparage our church. Our church was wonderful, but nobody was their best self the yeah. last two years. All of us were kind of in our trauma brain and it was a rough time. John Mark, you had this book that released last week called Live No Lies, Recognize and Resist the Three Enemies that Sabotage Your Peace. And I think this is one of a, the best books that we as a culture, as a community of believers could be reading in this time right now. And I say that to encourage you, but I also say like, there are these enemies and, and you go through here and you talk about the devil, the flesh and the world. Those are the three enemies. But the part about sabotaging your peace is the way there's no surprise that statistics say like we are a very like anxious and depressed society as a right. whole. This is not a Christian thing as a whole right now. And so this conversation is much needed. And so I want to jump into this book, if you're willing to do that with me. Yeah, happy to. You've written several books, and I heard you say that this was one of the hardest books for you to write. Why was that? Yeah, it was the hardest. Well, I mean, no surprise there. I was writing much of it is about Satan. (laughs) You know, spirits, I really shy away from the language of spiritual warfare. It's not biblical language and people import into that a lot of kind of weird, superstitious kind of ideas. I have a very robust theology of dark spirituality or whatever you want to call that. But it's call it spiritual warfare, call it spiritual opposition, call it demonization, whatever you want to call it. It's hard to quantify, Mm -hmm. you know, it's hard to like measure is this like spiritual opposition or am I just having a bad day or am right. I just emo because I didn't get a good night's sleep? Yep. Or, you know, is this just a, a cranky person or a mm-hmm. bad, like bad luck, you know, 
or is this Satan, <laughs> you know, yeah. or some combination of whatever. So it's hard to quantify. I don't know what was what, but it was interesting. You know, you write a book way before it comes out. And so it was a very long pipeline to a book. And so people were like, did you write The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry? Like in response to COVID? And no, it came out six months before COVID. I'm not yeah. like, if there's a conspiracy theory, it's like me and Bill Gates, we like <laughs> conspired to like unleash a global pandemic yeah. know, uh-huh. uh, in order to sell more books or whatever. But it just, that just was the timing. And this one's interesting. I wrote it before 2020 and before the world kind of blew up and the culture wars just between the digital algorithms and social media and politics have just gone to a whole other level. And so I guess just trying to navigate that space where people, it's hard to talk about any kind of cultural issues because there's so much identity, whether you're talking about the right or the left. People think about politics, think about culture, and more and more think about morality through the lens of kind of identity. Mm -hmm. And so then to push back on a moral idea or a cultural idea begins to somehow actually touch on a person's deepest sense of self and that they can't let go of, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's just very hard to try to write with nuance and thoughtfulness, but also conviction. And, you know, Orthodox Christianity, if you want to call it, or what the New Testament just calls it, the way, capital W of Jesus, this body of teachings and practices and that go back to Jesus himself and the writers in the New Testament, it is becoming increasingly radical to both the right and the left. And so if you hold to Orthodox Christianity, to the teachings of Jesus, there's increasingly a number of people on both sides of the culture wars that will really go after you. Mm. So I think just writing through that yeah, was, yeah. was tricky, you know? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, you know, he wrote about the devil, you know, that was yes. your, <laughs> your first enemy that you tackle in here is the devil. <clears throat> and in that section, the part one that you go through that, you talk about truth versus lies and how we have to figure out what we're going to believe. Like we believe the truth. It says, you actually write this, you say ideas that correspond to reality. We show up to reality in such a way that we flourish and thrive. And then you said, but when we believe lies, ideas that are not congruent with the reality of God's wise and loving design, then tragically, we open our bodies to those lies and let them become our muscle memory. That's what becomes our ideology. And we've seen a lot of that in the past handful of years, even within our culture. And well, I had another question because I want to talk to you about Christian culture and culture and is there Christian culture, all the things, because I have questions from your, from your last part of your book, <laughs> but we've seen that happening. And, you know, you even mentioned it here about the rise of conspiracy theories that we've had. Yeah. I mean, you said the devil's assault on truth is creating havoc in culture at large and not just in the church. How do you see that within the church? in particular, not just the culture, but how do you see this? People choosing to believe lies versus truth. How is that affecting the church? And I mean, the people of God. Yeah. I mean, gosh, there's lots of conversation here. I'm going to do my very best to make it succinct. And obviously there's way more in the book, but one metaphor I find helpful uh, from the world of psychology is the idea that we all live by mental maps. So if you think about, I don't know where you're recording from, Jamie, are you at like an office? Is it- I'm in my office. It's in my office space. Yeah. But like, did you drive there? In the I morning? drove here. Yep. Okay. So I'm guessing that you did not use like the maps on your phone to get to the office. Nope. That's because you have a mental map in your mind of how to get from your home to your office. I don't know if it's a two minute drive, 20 minute drive, but you know how to get there. You have this mental image in your mind that you can with your body follow as you direct your car to get to your office. And if your mental map is true And the best definition of truth from philosophy is just that which corresponds to reality. If your mental map that what's in your mind, how you think you get to work, if it corresponds to how you actually get to work, then how long's your commute? 10 minutes. 
10 minutes. Then 10 minutes later, you arrive at your office with your cup of coffee, you walk in, you do a podcast. If your mental map is off kilter, if it does not correspond to reality in biblical language, if it's a a lie, that's a very strong word, let's not emotionally low, let's just say if it's wrong, then 10 minutes later, you end up, I don't know, lost in some, you know, parking lot somewhere. Or in 20 minutes later, you could end up like out of cell service in some like far dystopian, Mm -hmm. you know, country wilderness. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know Austin very well. And in the same way that we have mental maps for how to get to the office or our coffee shop or the gym or grocery store or church on Sunday, we have mental maps for all of life, Mm. for our body, for our sexuality, for our marriage and parenting, for relationships, for money, for pleasure, for eating and drinking, for our relationship to God. We have this kind of mental map, this kind of vision of the cartography of life, all Mm -hmm. of life, every single dimension. And we have these mental maps for kind of how to get where we want to go to the good life or a happy life or in biblical language, the kingdom of God. And if our mental maps are true, if they correspond to reality, then we show up to reality in such a way that we flourish and thrive. So if we have a mental map of what it means to be an engendered human being who is sexual, if our mental map of what that means to be a woman or to be a man, to be a human being, to be a sexual human being, if our mental map for how that's designed, the intent behind it, the function, if it corresponds to reality, then we will show up to our body, to our gender and to our sexuality in such a way that we flourish and thrive. If our mental map, we could use any other analogy, this is just a very salient one right now, Mm -hmm. does not correspond to reality, then we're going to show up to our gender, we're going to show up to our sexuality, We're going to show up to romantic relationships. We're going to show up to interpersonal relationships in such a way that in the end is the cause of wounding and pain. And in the language of the scriptures, death, not death Mm -hmm. in the sense of like God killing you, but death in the sense of the opposite of life, you know? So this is the very basic kind of, we're not even doing Christian theology yet. It's very basic kind of just humanness. So into this paradigm, what makes human beings captivating is our ability of the imagination. We can imagine what doesn't actually exist. And then through our body, we can bring it into existence. So I woke up this morning and I just got back from a trip to Nashville and I woke up and my 12-year-old daughter was downstairs baking blueberry muffins for breakfast, which I was like, wow, like mm-hmm. that's so industrious of you. Yeah. Like seven o'clock in the morning, you're baking muffins. I was like, is this for school? She's like, no, just breakfast. I'm like, who does that? Who gets <laughs> up in the morning and makes muffins? But she's imaginative, she's creative. And so she's able with her imagination to imagine muffins for breakfast. And then through her body and through the map that we call a recipe, put these ingredients together and bring what is just an idea in her head, muffins for breakfast, into reality. So this is the genius that enables everything from baking muffins to starting a business, to writing a book, to planting a church, to leading a business, to writing a poem, like enables all human work and creativity. It's our genius, but it's also our Achilles heel. Mm. Because not only can we imagine things that are not true, we can actually come to believe them and then we can live as if they are true. So there's this book that I talk about in my book called People of the Lie by this famous psychologist, M. Scott Peck. He's a fascinating story. And he basically did a massive research project on how people become evil. That was like a really interesting question. And he would argue, and it's not politically correct, but that some people become so pervaded by hate that they, it's you're on fair ground to say that's an evil person. Doesn't mean there's no good in them. Doesn't mean there aren't good sides, but there are people who actually become evil, or at least they carry a high level of evil in their right. body and interpersonal relationships. His basic theory was that people believe lies. He said that people will have an experience 
they'll interpret that experience in an untrue way. They'll begin to hear a lie in their mind, and then they'll begin to live as if that lie is true. And then if they do that long enough, tragically, it actually does become true. So a very mm-hmm. practical example would be if they're, you know, this is a tender subject, but, you know, st- if statistics are to believe, be believed, one in four women have experienced sexual assault in their life. So that's a traumatic event. And the enemy, we'll talk about this in a minute, comes into a traumatic event like that with all sorts of lies. Lies could be it was your fault or you deserved it or you're now dirty or unclean or you're not lovable or you'll never find somebody now or you're damaged goods. None of that is true. Right. But those are lies just as a pastor I hear all the time from women. Mm -hmm. Now, those are not true. Right. But if you let those lies play in your mind and imagination, then as it then here's what will happen. You will start to live as if those things are true of you. And if you live under the narrative of I'm unlovable, I'm dirty, I'm not worthy. Nobody will ever love me. I'll never get married. I'll never find a quality person. If you start to live that narrative at first, it's not true, but you will find yourself behaving like the person you think you are. And then tragically, what wasn't true of you could become true Mm -hmm. because maybe in every interaction with men, you treat them with disrespect or with insecurity, or you don't even talk to them at all because you don't even think there's a. And so what started out as a lie Mm -hmm. tragically becomes true. So this, I think, is the devil's primary stratagem to drive both the human soul, a tender example, like our sexuality Mm -hmm. or culture at large. We could pull, you know, lightning rod examples out of the culture wars between left and right. This, I think, is his primary strategy. When Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, reverse engineer that. He was simultaneously saying that we're in bondage to lies. Mm -hmm. And so when I go through this paradigm of the world, the flesh and the devil, which isn't my paradigm, that's an ancient Christian paradigm, goes back to the desert fathers and mothers in the third century. That's just been kind of lost in the modern Western church. I'm trying to kind of revive and kind of re-articulate it for people living in Austin or Portland Mm -hmm. or wherever, you know, the ancient, this is an ancient paradigm from the way of Jesus. But in Jesus' most in-depth teaching on the devil in John 8, and I do a deep dive on this in the book, he doesn't talk about all the things I would expect him to talk about. Demonization, illness, a natural disaster like a tsunami, a poltergeist, a horrifying nightmare. I have theology for all of that stuff. That doesn't mean that stuff's not true. It is. But what does Jesus talk about? He talks about lies. He says, you belong to your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the, there's no truth in him. He calls the devil the father of lies, says when he lies, he speaks his native language. Mm. And he's all, of course, referring back to the Genesis 3 story. So in the kind of deep dive around the devil, I just explore more. That's a succinct version of what I explore, the role that truth and lies play either in our spiritual formation or our deformation, because we become the narratives that we believe. Mm. And so these mental maps that we live by, that's why Jesus came as a rabbi, as a teacher, to give us new mental maps to reality so that we can follow him, live under his teaching and show up to reality in such a way that we flourish and we thrive and we have eternal life, yeah, both quality and quantity. If you don't know it, guys, I'm a Texas girl through and through. I've lived here most of my life. I was born here and I love traveling. Here's why I love traveling throughout Texas, because it has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities, which means there's an infinite number of different travel experiences. And no two travelers are exactly alike. And it means that no two trips should be either. If you're a beach person, well, you can have fun under the sun with Texas's 350 miles of coastline. 
If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies cannot get enough of Texas's world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interest. Guys, come visit my state. Visit TravelTexas.com slash get your own to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash get your own. You know, it's so good because when I was reading this and you talked about believing lies, I thought of all of the ways that people believe lies. And I was like, they do this and they do this and they do this. And then when you talk, <laughs> and then when you talked about, I see where this is going. Yeah. And then when you talked about the lies, the, not the reality that then we believe them so much that we become them. I started thinking about in my own personal life, what has that been for me? Like, what are the things that I believe to be true about myself that are not true, that are lies. And then I believe them so long for so many years that they become almost my reality. And so it was very convicting. Two of my favorite things about this book before we go on to the next section were number one, I love the three sections. I love how many books and studies and other things you reference in here. I love when an author does that because A, it tells me they've, they've done a lot of work on the front end. But can I tell you that my favorite thing are these step sheets that you have in here? That's what they're called, right? At the end of yeah. each part. It's so funny. I've never done that before. It's not artistic. I'm just trying to really help people. Let me tell you guys, I got to the end of the first section and then I turned it and the pages stand out because they're a black background. And it literally is like, what did I read in high school instead of reading the book? It's like your cliff notes, yes. uh, but it's not really cliff notes, but it tells you, this is what I need to know. Steps for fighting the devil versus to meditate on a working theory of how do we do this? And then a summary. And I thought, John, like, this is great because what if I need to go back and reference the book and I don't have time to read the whole first part? I can go right here to this part. So I just wanted or to, if you just to want tell to sound you. cool. You can just like read those three step sheets <laughs> and you get, you get the whole gist of the book and, you know, three, four pages. You Easy. will get the gist, but there is the meat in between it. So that is for uh, sure. That Jamie, is for sure. I, I want to follow your leadership and not usurp your interviewing skills, which are A++. But I'm curious before we move on from talking about the role of lies, because this is just so key, especially in the space that you're in and the, and the women that are listening and the, the great work that you do. Have you had anybody on around like the idea of inner healing prayer or some people call it the healing of memories? Do you have any thoughts on that? Any opinion on that? Do you Have you had anybody on? Is that something you think about, talk about? I have not. Do you have someone for me? I have not had anyone on. And in personally, I'm in something right now called the confessional community that I'm walking through with Dr. Kurt Thompson. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. I love his work. Yes. What a gift adore him. And his show has already came out. It came out on October 1st. We talked about his new book, The Soul of Desire and big fan of the work he does. And so for me personally, I'm stepping into that a little bit with that. The closest person I would have had on would have been a woman named Lori Craig. Her and her husband, Matt, were on and their book is not about that at all, but they talk about it a lot in their marriage book about healing prayer and visualization and stuff like that. So that's a long answer to say, no, not really. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, that might be something that, you know, your listeners want to pursue. The most famous book is actually old. The writer's cease is by Agnes Stanford and it's called The Healing Light. And it's a short book, beautiful little read. Apparently Dallas Willard had it on his bedside table when he died. Mm. And yeah, the basic premise 
of healing prayers is along these lines that we go through experiences, often traumatic experiences, whether it's capital T trauma or small T trauma or just experiences. And we get somehow hurt through that. And Mm -hmm. then our brain interprets that experience some way. And that's where the lies often come in. And then this whole thing, we start, you know, living by lies and inner healing prayer. The natural follow-up question for the conversation we had just a minute ago, how we believe lies and they destroy us is like, well, how do I identify the lies and stop believing them? So, you know, there are some very pragmatic ways like read your Bible every day mm-hmm. and live in community and talk out the narrative and journal, write down that, see if you can identify the narratives, the videos that play in your mind, see if you can get them articulated and then maybe share them with a friend, a sister or a brother who is mature and wise. And can help be like, whoa, 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 that is not true. Mm-hmm. Like, wait, you actually believe that? Mm-hmm. And because these are not all like sin narratives. Right. Often they're right. like, I was just with a dear friend of mine. You would most, a lot of people would know his name if I said it, who's I think one of the best living preachers in America. And he's like, yeah, I'm not really a teacher. I'm more. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Where? And I've heard him say this multiple times. Like somehow the narrative got into his mind that he's not a teacher. Mm. And I'm like, you're one of the best teachers I've ever heard in my life. What are, mm. if you're not a teacher, nobody's a teacher, yeah. you know? Yeah. So somehow that narrative got in there yep. and I don't know the backstory. So in inner healing prayer, there are ways, and it's not a formula and there's not chapter and verse in the Bible to show you to do this, but there are time-tested ways of praying in with a very small group of kind of trained people, not professionals, just people that know how to listen to God's voice and sit with people and kind of know their way around the healing and the wounding of the soul, where you kind of ask the spirit to bring you back to memories. Often they're memories that you have. Sometimes they're most of the time they're memories that you've forgotten or suppressed. And then ask the spirit to kind of help your mind understand a lie that you somehow imbibed through that. And then you do like replacement narratives. You wait on the spirit and you ask him to either bring you a scripture or a truth to take the place of that lie. And then discipleship from there becomes every time that lie comes to your mind, you speak truth back to it and you refuse to let the inner dialogue play. You just speak truth and you move on. So I've started doing this. My wife and I have started doing this with other people and we're trying to really grow in our training a bit. I think this is a part of the work we want to do going forward because I am just seeing so much breakthrough and it comes in ways from, these are good, often we're working with good Christian people that read their Bible every day and have sat under good biblical teaching for decades and follow Jesus and even Mm -hmm. practice the spiritual disciplines. But some how these lies have gotten wired up in there. So yeah, just a long way of saying for those of you listening, that might be something you want to pursue. I love it. I am very, very intrigued and interested by that. And some of that work is happening in my group. And so that's really, really great. Okay. So you have another part, the flesh, and then you have the world. And I'm going to skip over the flesh if you don't mind. And I'm going to go straight to the world and culture. Now I have a question for you. Are you ready for this? Okay, the last section of your book, it is about the world, which I think without reading the book, I think people can ultimately, their first reaction was like, yes, it is us against them. It is us against the world. And we are the Christians. (laughs) And then the world is out to get us. And I was at an event recently and oh my gosh, I mean, I don't want to tell too much about it in case people were there as well, but it felt like the only thing that they were telling everyone in that audience who was a room of supposedly full of Christ followers, but it was just like the world is out 
to get us. And we have, which is very, very depressing almost, you know? And it made me think of, I was just recent, I think I told you this before we and started. it made me think of your book. No, no, it made me, I was <laughs> oh, no. reminded of that moment because I was listening to your podcast. I think I told you that before we started with David Brooks, I was listening to that episode, yeah. which is so good, by the way. I just, I want to listen again and take notes. But one of the things that he said in there was you guys were talking about this and I'm going to mess up. I won't have word for word, but he said something about so many times as Christians, we don't offer them what we have to offer. We have hope. We have, we have the good news. Yet so many times we come to the table with like, everything's falling apart. This is the worst. We get into this kind of defensive survivalist spirituality, like us versus them. We shouldn't batten down the hatches and not get, you know, Yeah. So I was at this event recently and I felt like that's what was happening. I was like, no, guys, we have the good news. We have something to offer the world. And that's not necessarily what this last part of your book is about. But you do talk about this post-Christian culture and so and pre-Christian culture and a Christianized culture. Can you just briefly break down what that means? Because we hear that language a lot that we live in a post-Christian society or is there a Christian culture and a secular culture? Can you just break that down for us a little bit? Yeah. So that's a simplification. This is a dangerous thing to do of a very sophisticated three-part frame of Western history by a sociologist called Philip Reef. He's brilliant. If you've ever read him, he is a nightmare to read. He is so difficult to read. I read a lot and I read some heavy stuff and he's so hard for me to read, but brilliant thinker. And he divided kind of Western history in particular into three phases that I use the language of pre-Christian culture, Christianized culture, and post-Christian culture. So pre-Christian culture would have been the Roman empire before the gospel of Jesus, Celtic Ireland with pics and their, it's tribal, their blood sacrifice, they're murdering each other right and left. It's, you know, tribal identities. And then the gospel comes and there's peace and there's the Celtic revival under St. Patrick. It would be much of indigenous culture in Africa before the missionary movement. It would be, you know, the Norse tribe, the Germanic tribes, which were brutally violent and thoroughly pagan before Christian missionaries came in the, you know, fourth century. So in a pre-Christian culture, it's spiritually charged. There is a sacred order. There's a transcendent, but it's in the gods and the goddesses mm-hmm. who are violent and volatile. It's tribal. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of bloodshed. Gospel comes and has a dramatic effect on, you know, Norse culture, German culture, British, what we can now call English culture, you know dramatic effect, like transformative effect upon these societies. Society never becomes Christian. So I don't call it Christian culture because at its best, if you study any period in Western history, at its best, culture is a mix of Christian ideas and beliefs and practices and thoroughly, you know, pagan originally, and then later secular or nationalistic kind of ideas and beliefs and practices. So it's always a mixed bag. There is no such thing as this like pure Christian utopia out there in the past and nostalgia. Like it never existed. Everyone's thinking we need to go back to that. I mean, no, just read a good church history book and it's both inspiring and so depressing at the same time. (laughs) It will rob you of any nostalgia about the past. Yeah. But there are times in culture, which feel like a distant memory and not a memory at all for me, where the primary cultural currents move you toward a Christian vision of life. Not in all areas, but in a lot of areas. So this be like through morality and stuff? Is this what you're like? So a great example would be basically from about the fourth century until the 1960s, the dominant forces of culture for whatever that is, 1700 years, would have moved you toward 
expressing your sexuality in the context of marriage between a man and a woman, right? Doesn't mean everybody was doing that. Doesn't mean there weren't people doing all sorts of other things through that whole period, but the, the dominant cultural forces would kind of push you in that direction, which was totally untrue of the ancient world and now is becoming incredibly untrue of the world we live in now. So that's kind of a, a Christian or a Christianized culture. Mm-hmm. Third phase is then the West has moved into what Reef calls post-Christian culture. And the key, the key takeaway for the book is that post-Christian culture is not a return to pre-Christian culture. So I'm in Portland. We are recently named the least religious city in America. People are not like worshiping Zeus. Right. They're not sacrificing goats in their front yard. They're not, you know, sacrificing their firstborn child to the fairy spirit mm-hmm. in the forest. Like people haven't gone back to gods. And I mean, some people have, but the overarching culture right. has not gone back to this pre-Christian pagan past. It's actually gone forward into this new phase that is bizarre. In some ways, it's like to dumb it down. It's like the West's rebellious teenager moment where okay. like, the teenager is like living in mom and dad's house, eating all of their food, living rent free and tweeting about how horrible they are and texting all their friends about right. how mom doesn't have a clue. Yeah. You know, it's like it's that moment. Which some of our kids might actually be doing. I mean, you know, I'm sure actually, are. <laughs> yeah. you know, so in a similar way, the West is living off of mm. the, the heritage and the increasing fumes of its Christian past, in particular around human rights. So, you know, Yuval Harari, leading atheist of the day, has called human rights a Christian myth. There is no meta, you do not get from the secular Darwinian Mm -hmm. materialistic worldview of the world that humans evolved from, you know, monkeys by the survival of the strong dominating over the weak in order to, to weed out, you know, those that are not as developed. You don't get from that to social justice and human rights, Mm -hmm. and equality, and dignity, and literally, not only do you not get from one to the other, it's beyond incoherent. Nazi Germany, Tom Holland, who is a secular historian, would argue that Nazi Germany is the truest outworking of secularism and Darwinian materialism. And that the American kind of, we're secular, but we have a high value for human rights, is actually deeply incoherent. Not because human rights are bad, but because they're based on Genesis chapter one. Right. That all human beings are made in the image of God, male and female, full stop. Uh And that's how you get to Black Lives Matter. That's how you get to social justice. That's how you get to racial reconciliation. That's how you get to caring for the poor. You get there through the Imago Dei and the Christian tradition. So it doesn't mean that, you know, secular people can't do human rights. They are doing it all over the world and doing beautiful things. But I would humbly suggest that maybe they're doing it in spite of their worldview and not because of it. So post-Christian culture, the point here, and I'll stop talking, is that it's a reaction against Christian culture. So it wants to take certain aspects of the kingdom vision, namely equality and justice, but it wants to individualize them, westernize them, set aside aspects of morality, particularly around sexuality and marriage, redefine those actually, and kind of coast forward. So it's an attempt to move. My friend, Mark Sayers has this great little aphorism. He says, it's an attempt to build the kingdom without the king, right? That's Christianity right. without Christ, a uh, society of peace and justice and freedom and equality, but without it, where the individual will gets to reign and do whatever the heck it wants. Mm. And that's one of the reasons that we're living through so much chaos in culture right now. Do you think that's one of the reasons? I mean, I think you basically just said this, but it made me think it seems like now more than ever, it's really easy to do all these good things, like you said, humanitarian things and all these things for what we would call, like your friend said, for the kingdom, but without the king. I think that is making it very confusing for people who are not followers of Jesus to know what it means to be 
a follower of Jesus. And what I mean by that is because we'll have a lot of people who are doing a lot of good things and will say they follow Jesus, but yet so many of the things that they don't follow, God would ask us to follow. Is my question making sense? And so it feels confusing to the world looking in like, okay, who is a real Christian? Because you're all doing good things, but then some of you have quote unquote rules that the others don't follow. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yes. And so that feels hard for people to see, like, what does it actually mean to follow Jesus then? Yeah, I think you are tapping into the great open wound in the church in North America. Dallas Willard, before he died, said the greatest issue facing the world today with all of its problems and needs is whether those who identify as Christians will become disciples students, practitioners, apprentices of Jesus, steadily learning from him to make progress into the kingdom of God. That's not a verbatim quote, but it's pretty close. So in America, we have this bizarre cultural phenomenon, and this is a hangover from uh, phase two in Philip Brief's schema of, you know, Christianized culture, where you can be a Christian, but not a disciple of Jesus. Mm. And it's even more acute in the Protestant tradition or the so-called evangelical tradition, which I actually don't think is a thing, at least not anymore. You know, like Catholics at least have that great rubric where there are Catholics and then there are practicing Catholics. Mm -hmm. So I, I wish we... I think and people we would like, be very open to admit, this is what I oh, am. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm Catholic, but I'm not a practicing Catholic. Right, yeah. And I so wish we had like, <laughs> I'm a Christian, but I'm not a practicing Christian. You know, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a disciple of Jesus or something like yes, that. Yes, like, yeah, it just means like, I kind of grew up in that. And eh, sure, I believe maybe that stuff and go to church once a month. But I kind of mostly just do my own American thing, whether it's through the left or the right or urban or suburban or rural or whatever. So I just wish there was more honesty and clarity. You know, Barna recently recently did this massive survey, like super deep dive on kind of the state of Christianity and millennials. And it looked at millennials that grew up in the church and divided them into four basic groups, you know, basically a group that had left the church altogether, a group that was basically, they called nominal Christians. So they, you know, still identified as Christian, but they didn't really go to church and they didn't live like a Christian. A group that they called habitual Christians that regularly went to church and did some Christian things, but mostly lived like everybody else. And then they had a final group, the fourth group that they called resilient disciples. And these weren't like the future Mother Teresa's. These were just like, go to church most weekends. They you know, have some kind of prayer life. They read scripture. They love Jesus. They believe that the scripture, that the New Testament is authoritative and attempt to live under it. You know, like basically a basic Christian, a basic disciple of Jesus. They put that number at 10%. So 10, this is not 10% of millennials. This is 10% of millennials who grew up in the church are quote, resilient disciples. So the point being, you know, you have still in all these studies, like 70 something percent of America identifies as Christian, mm -hmm. but then something like in national surveys, about 8% of America or some say 4% of America is actually following Jesus. Mm. So you have this bizarre cultural phenomenon that you don't have if you're in Sweden or you're in Indonesia or you're in, you know, Abu Dhabi. It's like, it's very clear if you are a Christian or not because of yeah. the cultural persecution. And I think we're moving in that direction. I agree. I agree. I read that in your book and my mouth kind of dropped because you do hear a lot of people claim like, no, this is a country made up of Christians. Like we are a Christian nation. And then you read something like that and it's staggering to say, but what about those that are, you know, actually wanting to be disciples of Jesus right. and go deeper than that? The number, it doesn't just drop a little bit, it plummets. 
Like it is. Yes. And there's truth in both those statements. America and Western culture has been radically reshaped by Christ. There's, I don't know if you've read this, one of the most famous books that came out last year. It's a commitment to read it. It's this book called Dominion by Tom Holland, who is a secular agnostic historian, brilliant writer. That's what uh, Kurt Thompson talked about. He's rereading. Oh, he did. Yeah. Good. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah, it's brilliant. He said it's one of the best books he's ever read. So yes. Yes, it's brilliant. Again, it's a commitment. This is not a Christian book. It's called Dominion. Subtitles, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. And he basically opens the book by saying, this is not a Christian, he's a historian, saying almost everything that you assume is good and normal in the Western world comes from Christ yeah. and from the Christian tradition. And then he gives like a couple salient examples. He says, such as the assumption that the West has that the strong should not prey on the weak has no antecedent in the ancient Greco-Roman world before Christ. I'm literally, it was the opposite. The strong Mm -hmm. were expected to prey on the weak and got honor for it. So at the end, you know, again, he's not a Christian. His interpretation of all the culture wars is that these are basically, he calls it a Christian civil war. I don't actually think that it is that, but his basic case at the end is say we've moved on from Christianity, all you want, say Christendom is over he would say the West is still thoroughly Christian. And what he means by that is it's been so deeply shaped, in particular around human rights, by Christ's vision. But that actually is not contradictory to what you're saying, which I'm 120% on the same page is with. There's a massive group of people that have some vague Christian kind of schema of the world who are not disciples or apprentices of Jesus actively practicing the way of Jesus, following after Jesus, living in community, living under his teachings, attempting to make the Sermon on the Mount how they live their life. Yeah, it's true. You say in this last chapter, you say every follower of Jesus in every culture has to constantly ask the questions, in what ways have I been assimilated into the host culture? Where have I drifted from my identity and inheritance? And you said that this is sum up our whole conversation on this subject. The temptation for us in the West is less to atheism and more to a DIY faith. That's a mix of the way of Jesus, consumerism, sexual sex ethics, and radical individualism, which is kind of that idea of following the King without the King. You know, we can kind of bring in some of these great things. I'm a great person, human rights, all the things. And kind of, like you said, DIY your faith. And there you are. And that is where I think a lot of people in that high percentage of Christians in our country would fall. Yes. And then we would get and, and that's where a lot of, you know, you're in this world, you're not doing this remotely, but you're, you have exposure to this. A lot of the kind of Christian industry of books and all the things is kind of like Christian self help. Right, right, right. You know, yeah. and, and I don't even mean that like in a mean way. It's just like, it's basically just kind of American self help, individualism, relationship advice, life's good, not bad things, but it's not Christian in the sense of, like, this is how you apprentice under Jesus, mm. you know? So again, that doesn't mean it's wrong. That stuff's bad. It just means, you know, there's a lot of kind of American self-help masquerading as Christian mm. spirituality. John Mark, I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today. Oh, what a joy. Love this book. Highly recommend it. Our mutual friend, Jenny said, I saw her say publicly, this is a book everyone needs to read right now for this moment. And I could not agree with her anymore. I will tell you, as soon as we get off this call, I'll be ordering three books. Do you want to know what they are? The Healing Lights. Like they are. The Healing yes. Lights. Dominion, since you're now the second person okay, well, that has mentioned this on the show. You. That's no, like, I, I'm here I, for it. It's a long, that's a, that's a commitment. It might be take me a year, but I'm here for it. 
And then we didn't even talk about this today, but again, I already raved about your podcast. I've listened to, I'm also going to be ordering the long loneliness, the autobiography of the legendary Catholic by Dorothy day, because your guests on your podcast recommended yes, that. I'm actually ordering that. He mentioned that David Brooks mentioned that I've not read it. And I have a, I love memoir. So I'm reading lit right now. I just started it last night, but I love uh, memoir too. Up, so. And we'll link to that show. Cause I think everyone should go watch it. It was very, very insightful, but you guys were having a conversation about celebrities versus saints. Yes. It's a different conversation. It's not really about my book. It's no, no, no. It's a whole different conversation. I'm just telling everyone I was, it's on my brain because I was listening to it this morning. So John Mark, okay. You read a lot. This is very evident in our conversation today. And when you read your books, it's very evident that you do a lot of reading. What are you currently reading right now? I'm currently reading The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman, which I think is basically like my book, but way better. (laughs) (laughs) which is a little discouraging. Uh, No, it's different and it's much more academic. It's absolutely brilliant. And I just started last night, Lit by uh, Mary Carr, the Liars Club writer. Mm -hmm. I've read it, it's good, yes. Yeah, I'm just through the preface last night and then I fell asleep. How many books do you read a year, a month? I shoot for two, uh, my quota is two a week, but I try to do more of that. So normally on a normal year, it's about 120 books a year. Do you watch any TV? Very little. No TV in our house. We do a family movie night once a week, which is really fun. We've got a projector that we kind of set up and like make a little theater in our house, which is fun. And no, sometimes when I'm really exhausted or burned out, I'll, you know, watch some TV series or something like that on Netflix. But no, I, I try not to. I love it. I love it. John Mark Cromwell, thank you for coming on. Your book just released last week, Live No Lies, Recognize and Resist the Three Enemies of Sabotage Your Peace. Grateful for the work that you're doing, not only in your church in Portland and in your family, with your three beautiful kids and wife, but just the work that you're putting into the world. So we're all benefiting Same from it. Same to so you, thank Jamie. You. You're one of the good ones. We're, oh, sorry, I'm not trying to divide people into good and bad. I'm just, I was, <laughs> you're like, these are the evil ones. I, I know, <laughs> they're the us versus them. We're the self-righteous <laughs> yeah. Pharisees. No, thanks for <laughs> yeah. the work you do. We're so grateful. Yeah. You guys, I have a feeling you too wanted this conversation to go on for hours and hours. John Mark, thank you for coming on the happy hour. This was a conversation I'll never forget. And I guess I'm going to need to get the book Dominion by Tom Holland because that's two guests in the past two weeks who have recommended that book. Have any of you guys read that book? John Mark Comer and Dr. Kurt Thompson both recommended that book. Don't forget, everything we talk about is always in the show notes at jamieivy.com. Thanks so much for listening to the Happy Hour Jamie Ivy podcast. We are truly grateful for every single story that we get to share with you, every encouragement we get to bring to you, and every opportunity we get to point us all to Jesus. If you're loving this show, we would appreciate it if you would leave us a rating and or review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, tell your friends. That is actually the number one way that people find out about our show because you tell them. Join us right here every Wednesday and Friday for meaningful conversations that make us think, make us laugh, and point us to Jesus. Also, come find me on other places around the internet as well. I love Instagram. I'm at Jamie Ivy, And we've been having some fun posting videos on YouTube as well. Sometimes you wish you could see the person I'm interviewing. Well, come over and find us there and you can. jamieivy.com slash YouTube. The Happy Hour is produced by Lindsay Sweeney. Show notes are written by Abigail Castell. Graphics by Rachel Ray. The show is edited by the team at Podshaper. And I'm your host, Jamie. And I love every single week that I get to be here with you guys. Until next time, have a happy hour with a friend. Happy Hour.